From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, May 11th. I'm Marco Werman. Anger at UN monitors in Syria will take you to a village near Damascus where residents say the UN has failed to protect them from the ongoing fighting there. Also ahead, Korean adoptees offer their support for single moms in South Korea. We do imagine our own mothers, if they had had such support from politicians or government, you know, maybe it could have been different for our own mothers. Plus, a controversy over a decades-old cartoon in India, and Paul McCartney rocks a Zocalo in Mexico City. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Another day of violence today in Syria. Late in the day, a powerful blast shook the city of Aleppo in the north. This just hours after the Syrian government claimed to have foiled a suicide bombing in Aleppo. State television showed United Nations monitors inspecting the white van that was allegedly to be used in the operation. Meanwhile, opposition activists continued to accuse the government of killing protesters and shelling civilian areas. U.N. monitors in Syria are facing increasing pressure to stop the violence. The world's Laura Lynch visited one opposition stronghold near Damascus today, where it appears residents are growing resentful of the monitors. The village of Demir lies on the Damascus-Baghdad highway, making it a strategic transportation hub for the country. But right now, it's surrounded by army checkpoints, complete with sandbags and dozens of soldiers. Demir is controlled by the opposition rebels, and when we arrive with the UN monitors, the army warns us that it's not stable or secure. We proceed slowly along the main road behind the two white UN vehicles. Before us, the street is empty, almost no one is out. But soon, residents spot the convoy and start to spill out toward our cars, surrounding us, wanting to share their stories. Some hold up spent bullets and other armaments. Yesterday, we were under fire from shelling and guns, this man says, pointing to the shops. Look at the damage. They shot at civilians. We want help from the UN. Today, there are signs that the residents' patience with the UN is running out. There was a military operation here yesterday, and the residents say people were killed. What change do you want to see in Syria? We want to change the regime, he says, because we've seen what they do when they come to our town. An impromptu protest breaks out as the crowd swells in size and anger. The UN monitors push forward even as we return to speak to the Syrian soldiers who are standing sentry at the edge of town. Their view of the battle for control of Demir couldn't be more different. One officer says the almost daily violence and death are entirely the fault of rebels stationed inside the city. We are here to protect the civilians, he says. There are a lot of armed men inside. If we go into the city, the armed men will kill the civilians. 
As for the residents' claim that they were shelled overnight, a senior officer denies that's true. We mostly use our Kalashnikov rifles, he says, and only when it's necessary. We aren't allowed to use mortars. This is the kind of divided, sometimes treacherous ground the UN monitors navigate as they try to talk to both sides in an effort to reduce the clashes. Here it appears they've become targets of resentful residents inside the city, ones who may be angry that the UN hasn't stopped the violence. The evidence of that comes as the monitors emerge from their trip to the heart of the village. The monitors don't speak to the media, but the damage to their cars speaks for itself. The rear window of one vehicle is smashed. The other car's side mirror is shattered. People threw stones at another convoy in a nearby town just days ago, and a bomb blast just missed UN monitors traveling south on Wednesday. Here, as the monitors pull out, the villagers and the army are left alone once again, knowing the battle is far from over. For The World, I'm Laura Lynch in Demir. Jordan has become a haven for those fleeing violence in nearby countries. More than 110,000 Syrians have fled to Jordan, and about 50,000 Libyans and Yemenis are there as well, along with some half a million Iraqi refugees. Meanwhile, Jordanians are bracing for the hordes of Gulf Arab holidaymakers expected this summer. Dale Gavlak in Amman speaks with Jordanians about how they're coping under the strain. Syrian refugees line up for boxes of rice, sugar and tea at an aid center in Ramtha on the northern Jordanian frontier, just across from Dara, where the 14-month Syrian uprising began. Mohammed Ahmed Ayad of the aid group Kitab and Sunnah says the group is struggling to provide accommodation. Frankly, Ramtha is full to capacity. There are very few available apartments now, so we must house three families together in one. Housing isn't the only problem. Jordan and the UNHCR, the United Nations Refugee Agency, are loath to open up a new camp, even though one has already been set up. Jordan doesn't want to further damage already strained ties with Syria. And the UN says it's hard to get people to move home once a camp has been opened. So for the moment, Jordan has opened its public schools to educate refugee children and at state hospitals to care for wounded and ill refugees. But for one of the world's ten driest countries, the real challenge is getting everyone enough precious water. The infrastructure can't keep up with the need. Jordan can only pipe out water once a week to fill storage tanks on people's roofs. If the power goes out or pumps are damaged, then not a drop flows. Also, if you use up all the water in the tank before it's refilled, you pay for a water truck to fill it back up. That's something neither refugees nor poor Jordanians can afford to do. Riyad Farid runs a gas station in Karwash in Amman. He says he never has enough water at work or at home. I always have to buy extra water from the water tankers. Water that comes from the government supplies is never enough. Of course, with Syrian and Iraqi refugees flooding in and Gulf Arabs coming for their summer vacations, this only puts more pressure on our system. And there's another problem linked to the refugees, the annual summer influx of tourists. Hussein Nur al-Abad spends his day driving the hilly streets of Amman in his taxi. Normally, he likes nothing better. But he's dreading this summer. 
Already there are huge traffic jams. We're being invaded by Gulf Arabs, even more so now with the problems in Syria, Egypt and Libya. They're not going to those hot spots. Our streets are clogged and rents are going through the roof. Just wait. Food, drink and transportation prices are going to go up too. Hotel clerk Ahmed Najar says it's tough to see Arabs from the Gulf flinging money around when Arab refugees and impoverished Jordanians are suffering. The UN Refugee Agency representative to Jordan, Andrew Harper, says the international community must do a lot more to help Jordan and its people bear the burden. They have been responding in a, in a way which is uh, a model not only for the region but for the international community. Uh, it's been exceptional. So uh, it's, again, easy for the international community to be talking big about Syria, but uh, what we need to see is actually a lot more support to uh, the agencies working on the ground to provide protection and assistance to Syrians, but also to the Jordanian government and to the communities. But Harper says given the worldwide interest in the Arab democracy movements over the past year, money to help refugees hasn't materialized, especially in Jordan. The U.N. appeal to raise $84 million for Syrian refugees, for example, hasn't been met in the two months since it was launched. And if money isn't forthcoming, Jordanians and the Arabs they're hosting are going to be facing a long, hot summer ahead. For The World, I'm Dale Gavlak in Amman. Business is often conducted in Jordan in meeting rooms and cafes, accompanied by strong Arabic coffee. It's much the same in Turkey, though there they call it Turkish coffee. The American Turkish Association is bringing that centuries-old coffee culture to the United States with its mobile Turkish coffee truck. I caught up with the truck today in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Harvard Square to be precise. This is what they actually use, it's called Jezve. That's Danny Giorgiolu. He's got a cool little gadget that brews Turkish coffee on the countertop instead of the stovetop. It usually goes on the stove, but because, you know, we're in a food truck, these machines were made so that we pop it right in here, and it's the same thing, and there's overflow protection and everything, so it doesn't overflow. Because the Turkish coffee, as it's ready, it starts uh, foaming up, and that's when you know it's ready. What do you put in there? Just coffee and water? Coffee, water, and the sugar. The sugar as well? Yes. You give it a mix with all the combination with the coffee, uh, the water, and the sugar. And then uh, once I make it, you'll see how we pour it into the cups. We take a spoon, we scoop it up from the top, we pour it in the bottom of the cup first, and then you pour the coffee on top of that, and then you'll see the foam build on top, and that's when you know the coffee's good. Well, while the coffee's cooking away, uh, Gizem White, you are mm-hmm. the person who came up with this idea. What, what's your kind of support, enthusiasm for Turkish coffee all about? It's a great question. It's not just a drink for us. People have their own traditions, their own ceremonies, and coffee brings people together. So this is actually just an excuse for us because we love socializing, we love you know, exchanging ideas, experiences. So it's just an excuse for us. During Ottoman times, the first coffee house ever opened in 1554, the first coffee house. And people are going to these coffee houses to talk about, you know, politics, religion, social issues. So these coffee houses became part of our lives. Um, I've been living in this country. I love this country. I love the people. And they love their morning coffee. And I uh, know that we have this 500 years old Turkish coffee culture. So I thought, you know, why not facilitate cultural communication through coffee conversation? 
everything starts with a conversation and I feel like we just need to know each other better and uh, talk about our culture, you know, we're just trying to inspire cultural conversation about Turkey, Turkish cuisine, American culture, that's the whole idea. We're traveling just to say hi to our American friends, offer some free Turkish coffee, you know, have some conversation, that's all about it. And, and that's hot Turkish coffee, and I don't think we should let it get cool. I agree. <laughs> Can I have a tray? That's so not Starbucks. Are. It's not espresso, <laughs> even. It's something. It's a completely different animal. It's, it's a culture. It's a, it has an own identity. It's not just a drink. It's mm. a lifestyle. That's completely different. I know. It's Some it's it's you feel the the kind of sediment of the coffee and the sugar. It's all. It's really complex. It's really amazing. No, actually, we serve these um, with glass cups, so you can actually right. read your fortune right. through the coffee cup. Oh, you read the, the grounds at the bottom you, of the that's cup? That's right, exactly. Uh, yeah. And is you it know. usually good news? or? <laughs> uh, usually, yes. <laughs> well, who could pass up that opportunity? Another American Turkish Association volunteer, Sheni Farali, agrees to gauge my future via the coffee grounds. Don't tell me anything about yourself. I don't want clues. Okay, <laughs> now know? what do I what do I do with this now? Okay. Hold your cup. Put the saucer on top of it. Flip it over. There you go. Shenny insisted on privacy for the grounds reading and wouldn't let me record her. But rest assured, it was good news. Mostly. Our Turk experience, as Gizem White calls it, continues online. See how they make Turkish coffee in a food truck at theworld.org. Still to come on the program, how a wind-powered toy inspired a new tool in the fight against landmines. That's on the world from PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Sunday is Mother's Day here, of course, but in South Korea there's a Mother's Day celebration today, and it's specifically for women who raise children on their own. Being a single mother can be hard anywhere, but in Korea it brings shame on the entire family. Single mothers are getting some support, though, and it's coming from Korean adoptees. Reporter Jason Struther has a story from Seoul. Kim Ji-young says she and her seven-year-old son are getting their lives back on track. Earlier this year, they lived in a shelter after losing their apartment. She says they had nowhere else to go. She says it's very difficult in Korea for an unwed mother to live with her parents. There is a tremendous prejudice towards single mothers, and it's an embarrassment to the family. My parents would feel ashamed to have us living there, she says. By the way, Kim is not her real name. She asked me not to reveal her identity. Unwed motherhood is often kept a secret here, much like in the U.S. more than 50 years ago. But today, the stories of women like Kim were told at the second annual Single Mother's Day ceremony in Seoul. It's not just family abandonment. These women sometimes get fired from their jobs, and they're treated like social outcasts, according to Choi Hyun-suk. 
She leads an advocacy group for unmarried mothers. She's one herself. She says for most pregnant single women, there are only two choices. When I was eight months pregnant, my brother told me that I should have an abortion, Choi says. If not that, then I should put the baby up for adoption. Choi says after she gave birth, she did bring her son to an orphanage, but quickly changed her mind. International adoption has long been the last resort for pregnant single women who were told they were unfit to be mothers. It started in the 1950s after the Korean War. Since then, at least 150,000 Korean babies have been sent overseas, most to the U.S. Today, some of those adoptees have come back as adults, and they advocate for unwed Korean mothers. My name is Jane Jung Tranka. I am an internationally adopted Korean. I was born in 1972, and I was adopted with my sister to northern Minnesota. Tranka is president of TRAC, Truth and Reconciliation for the Adoption Community of Korea, a group that opposes international adoption. She says South Korean policies continue to make it financially difficult for single women to raise children on their own. Because Korea is so prejudiced against the women who are having children out of wedlock, instead they are prioritizing their money in a way that favors orphanages over being cared for by your own mom. 30-year-old Shannon Height says the way unwed mothers are still treated here made her and other adoptees want to support them and get involved in Single Mother's Day. We do imagine our own mothers, if they had had such support from, from people like us or from, you know, politicians or government, you know, maybe it could have been different for our own mothers. Height says she's glad to see that these days more single mothers, like Kim Ji-young, are willing to keep their children. <laughs> Kim says for now, things look pretty good. She has a part-time job, and she's also studying to become a realtor. But she begins to tear up when she talks about her son's future. She says she's worried about when he gets older, when teachers and other parents find out that his mother isn't married. Then he, too, will feel ashamed. For The World, I'm Jason Struther in Seoul. A political cartoon drawn over 60 years ago caused an uproar in India's parliament today. Members of India's lower house waved photocopies of the cartoon and made enough of a ruckus to delay proceedings in the parliament. The world's Carol Hills is with me to explain. Carol, where did this cartoon appear and what is it all about? Well, the cartoon is currently in a high school history textbook in India, but it originally was published in 1949. And it was published in a magazine called Shankar's Weekly, which was a magazine started by this Indian cartoonist, Shankar Pillai. So break the cartoon down for us. We're looking at it now here in the studio. I see uh, Nehru with a whip, a crowd of people in the background, and a, a rotund man on top of a snail. And the snail has the word constitution written on its shell. What's going on? Well, this was published in 1949, and at the time, India was trying to come up with its own constitution. It had only been independent since 1947. So the person on the snail is B.R. Ambedkar. He is revered among Dalits, who used to be known as untouchables. And at the time, he was chairing the large committee of politicians who was coming up with a constitution. And it had taken a couple of years, and the constitution still hadn't been finished. And so the idea is that Nehru is saying, hurry up, hurry up, let's finish the constitution. But Dalits today and other lower caste parliament members are just furious that this kind of cartoon is in a textbook. So how did it go from a textbook cartoon illustrating a part of India's history to being a a major disruption in parliament? Well, it's been in this textbook since 2006. 
and the idea is that's a chapter on India's history and how it came up with the Constitution. And there's been murmurings about it. But today, Dalit members of parliament and other lower caste members of parliament just kind of went in and say, this is enough. We're not going to put up with this. We think it's insulting this person, Ambedkar, who we revere. He was seen as somebody who really elevated the status of Dalits and developed a real self-respect. And so they feel like he's being ridiculed. This person really, really important to them is being ridiculed in this cartoon. And how can it turn up in a textbook? And Carol, is it more than the Dalit class in India who are offended by this cartoon? Well, a number of opposition politicians were offended by it. And it really has caused a a response among India's lower castes. And it's very much a, a symbol I talked to an Indian historian today, and she said that this person, Ambedkar, the person who they feel is insulted in this cartoon, she said Dalits revere this person, and they really refer to him now as sort of the father of India's constitution, and they don't think he's gotten the respect that he should have, and then he's on par with Gandhi. Mm. But not everybody agrees with that, but he has such a potent symbol for them that that's why even the suggestion that he's being insulted, even though... I looked on the web online, and the whole chat there among Indians and people reading this story was, what's so offensive about this cartoon? Nehru is whipping the Constitution process, not Ambedkar. Mm. So there's there's disagreement about Ambedkar's role, but it really touched a nerve among lower castes in India. So what's going to happen to the cartoon? Well, today, the education minister apologized profusely, of course, added very quickly, it didn't happen under my watch. I, mm-hmm. I was an education minister in 2006, and they're going to remove it from the textbook. What a difference 60 years makes, Carol. I mean, imagine, I, I'm imagining there wasn't much of an uproar over the cartoon when it was first published. I mean, maybe it shows that caste politics in India haven't disappeared. They're just, in fact, more complex than ever. I think so. It's it's really interesting because this cartoonist who published it, Shankar Pillai, he's considered the father of political cartooning there, and his career spanned both pre- and post-independence India. So he's somebody whose whole job was to ridicule politicians. So at the time this was published, nobody batted an eye. So the fact that people are strongly objecting to a person, Shankar Pillai, who is also revered, suggests that there's a real sort of self-respect and a real dignity among groups like the Dalits, and there's a sense of really owning their identity that wasn't around 60 years ago. And it's saying, look, at this person in this cartoon, we revere him, and you're making fun of him, and we're not going to put up with it. You can see the 1949 cartoon by Shankar Pillai at theworld.org. Carol, thanks for explaining this to us. Thanks, Marco. I'm Marco Werman. Egypt's first real televised presidential debate was held last night. Egyptians have had the first ever taste of democracy. A limited taste. Only two of the 13 candidates took part. And later, one does not simply walk in Mordovia. One race walks, at least this weekend. We explain ahead on The World. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. If you were anywhere near a radio in Egypt, 
you'd be hearing this campaign song for Amr Musa. He's one of the leading candidates for Egypt's upcoming presidential election. Since the fall of Hosni Mubarak over a year ago, Egypt has been ruled by a military government. That will change following the drawn-out presidential election process that has 13 candidates now duking it out. Last night, the two most popular contenders faced off on Egyptian television. In one corner, Amr Musa. We are aiming to build a state where all citizens feel secure about their livelihood and their jobs, a state where every citizen in four corners of Egypt feel reassured that their country is inching towards democracy. Musa served as Hosni Mubarak's foreign minister for 10 years until he became the head of the Arab League in 2001. His opponent last night, Abdel Monaim Abdel Futua, is a moderate Islamist who broke with the Muslim Brotherhood last year. I am dreaming of a democratic and independent state that gives prominence to Sharia, a state that creates job opportunities for its youth, a state where people can find decent jobs a state where its citizens can live in dignity and be proud of their country. The four-hour televised debate was billed in Egypt as historic. Arab affairs analyst Magdi Abdelhadi was watching, and he joins us now from Cairo. Uh, Magdi, just how groundbreaking was this for Egypt? It is historic. Egyptians have never seen anything like this before. You know, past elections were a foregone conclusion. Uh, They've only had one multi-candidate presidential election. It was Mubarak and against a few others, and no one doubted back then the outcome. Today, nobody knows who's going to win that race. And in that respect, Egyptians have had the first ever taste of, shall we say, a greater degree of democracy, maybe even democracy, than they've ever had in their history. I got to say, listening to the exchanges just now between Musa and Abdel Futua, uh, I mean, they were described in the press as passionate, but they didn't seem to really capture that, what we just heard. Did the two candidates ever catch fire during the debate? Well, the first half, really, was pretty tedious. They were very differential and polite, uh, and they both said things that few people could disagree with, like wanting to have a democratic state where the rule of law applies to everybody, That is very fine. The question is really how to get there. It is only in the second part when they started to attack each other's past record that it got really there were some sparks flying. Magdi, aside from characterizations of each other's personality, um, was there one issue that uh, the two candidates debated last night that seemed to underscore the, the past versus future concretely for Egypt? They talk most of the time in generalities, fighting unemployment, attracting foreign investment, You know, it's just a question of how to get there. And the question of Israel, of course, one of the most contentious issues, they also disagreed to a certain point where uh, the Islamist candidate regarded Israel as as a strategic threat, a country armed to the teeth with 200 nuclear heads, he said. And Egypt should really prepare itself to defend itself. He didn't want to tear up the peace treaty or to declare war or anything like this. He said just Egypt has to have a strong army to stand up to Israel. Mr. Amr Musa thought that this was very dangerous. He thought that Israel was a rival and a country that he has many disagreements with. He is aware that most Egyptians regard Israel as an enemy, but he thinks as a politician and a potential head of state, that is a language he shouldn't be used because it's too dangerous. But in most other issues, really, I thought they they broadly agreed it was just the the history and the past record of each one of them, whether they can deliver 
whether people fear the Islamist uh, candidate. Mr. Amr Musa tried to play, of course, on that fear, saying that, you know, in me you have, in Amr Musa, that is, they have a, a proven track record. I'm a, he's a statesman. If people vote for him, they know what they get. If they vote for an Islamist candidate, they vote for the unknown. And there are many potential dangerous things that could happen to Egypt if they were to have an Islamist president. So, Magdi, as a device to better inform Egyptian voters, uh, what do you think this unprecedented debate uh, gave people who watched it last night? Do you think they're, they're now better able to cast their vote? There is, shall we say, a very small sector of Egyptian society who are politically enlightened and very interested in detail. The vast majority, my guess is, would choose on the basis of faith, uh, on the basis of sort of they like this guy, they don't like this guy, they've got gut feelings liking this guy. I don't think many people would be examining in detail their respective programs. But this was an historic night. This was democracy in action. I mean, the Egyptians have never seen anything like that before. Very interesting indeed. Magdi Abdelhadi, an independent Arab affairs analyst, speaking with us from Cairo about last night's presidential debate there. Magdi, good to speak. Thank you. You're welcome. Several European leaders are threatening to boycott the Euro 2012 soccer tournament in Ukraine next month. At issue is the alleged abuse of the jailed former prime minister, Yulia Tymoshenko. She just ended a hunger strike. The tournament is one of Europe's biggest sporting events, and it's likely to attract tens of thousands of fans. Some of the matches will be held in Donetsk. It's a coal mining city in eastern Ukraine. Donetsk is also the setting of an award-winning new documentary by a German filmmaker. It's called The Other Chelsea. The film follows a group of coal miners from Donetsk the year their local soccer club won the Europa League tournament. Bridget McCarthy has a story. The Other Chelsea is a reference to Donetsk's professional soccer club, Shakhtar. In 2009, Shakhtar became the first Ukrainian team ever to win the Europa Cup. Here comes Shakhtar the Nets once again, and it's all orange at the moment in eastern Ukraine. But the other Chelsea isn't just about soccer. It's about the other Ukraine, the one that didn't support the 2004 Orange Revolution and that still considers Moscow its capital, not Kiev. Film director Jakob Preuss got interested in this part of Ukraine after working as an election observer in 2004. I was sent to Donetsk probably because I speak Russian, and I was deeply impressed by this divide of the country in east and west and orange and blue. Preuss's film shows the country's starkest divide between rich and poor. Nowhere is that more apparent than in Donetsk. It's Ukraine's Appalachia. I have these coal miners who are the losers of the breakdown of the Soviet Union who live in really horrible conditions, who are still working in this mine, which is really dangerous. They're also fanatically devoted to their soccer team. Then you have this new political elite, the oligarchs, who also go out to the stadium because if you want to become something in Donetsk, you have to be there. The oligarchs are up in the VIP box, rubbing shoulders with Ukraine's richest man, Rinat Akhmetov. He owns the club and never misses a game. Preuss wasn't able to get an interview with the reclusive Akhmetov, but he did get to know another Donetsk oligarch, an ambitious young politician named Kolya. He is really a representative of this very corrupt Machiavellian elite. Kolya actually has a copy of Machiavelli in his flat, not to mention a picture of Stalin on his office wall. 
He lives like a prince, despite his small salary as a city councilman. Normally, people go into business, make a lot of money, and then they go into politics just to protect their wealth and just to have the immunity and to, to play around with politics to even make more money. But Collier got rich from politics by steering government contracts to his construction companies. All Ukrainian politicians in parliament, on paper, they're not supposed to have businesses, but they are all millionaires and even billionaires. So this is so normal there that Collier didn't even think about not telling me about it, which shows like when, and what a mess this country is. In one of the film's most memorable scenes, Kolya calmly explains the way the political system works in Ukraine. In your Europe, the judiciary protects both government and opposition. Here, the judiciary only protects the people in power. If you lose the election, you go to jail. Like former presidential candidate Yulia Tymoshenko. This has been quoted a lot of times in Ukraine because people couldn't believe that this guy is saying it so bluntly. But Kolya is not the only blunt talker. Preuss introduces us to Stepanovich, a pit worker in his late 60s, who spent his whole life in the mines. I think all these millionaires are thieves and bandits. Our whole system, everyone in power, he says, they're all criminals. Stepanovich, whose son was killed in a mining accident, thinks life was better back when Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. Even when times were bad, he says, at least we stuck together. His girlfriend, Valentina, who works in the mine's front office, agrees. An irrepressible flirt, she sports an enormous blonde beehive and leopard skin outfits, despite her not exactly girlish figure. Preuss says when Valentina attended the premiere of The Other Chelsea in Kiev, she received a standing ovation. In fact, audiences throughout Ukraine, East and West, love this film. Perhaps because Jakob Preuss doesn't just show us the miserable living conditions of the coal miners, but also their warmth, humor, and humanity. A Ukrainian told me for him it's a little bit post-Soviet countries. People are often like coconuts. They're a little bit hard from outside, but, you know, soft inside. And Europeans or Americans are more like peaches sometimes, you know. It's like soft from outside, but uh, pretty hard on the inside. For The World, I'm Bridget McCarthy. Geo quiz today, keep one foot on the ground at all times. Athletes from more than 60 nations are competing in the World Race Walking Cup this weekend. Don't laugh, race walking's an Olympic sport. We're looking for the Russian city that's hosting this weekend's World Cup races. The American team is already there practicing and hanging with the locals. Everybody seems to be welcoming us with open arms. And yeah, people who don't speak English, like, they really want to talk to you and they, like, pull out translators over and say, hey, tell them this, tell them that. And, you know, we're walking on the course today in training and they're like, go, go, go. And, and you know, that might be the only English word they know, but they want to tell you go, go, go. So it's, it's a lot of fun. The host city is a 400-mile train ride from Moscow. It's also the capital of the Russian Republic of Mordovia. We're back with the answer in a few minutes. In the meantime, we want to thank our geotexting game winners today, Gina in Groton, Massachusetts, Eduardo in Westchester, Pennsylvania, and Angela in Queen Anne, Washington. They all know where the race walking action is this weekend. It's easy to play along with us next time. Just text GEOQUIZ, one word, to 69866. (music) 
One of the lingering legacies of war is landmines. They kill and maim thousands of people each year, sometimes long after the conflict is over. Getting rid of them is time-consuming, costly, and deadly. But one man from Afghanistan thinks he's come up with a way to clear mines in a cheaper, easier way. His device was inspired by a toy, and the world's Clark Boyd writes about it in his latest column for the BBC Future website. Clark, first of all, tell us more about this device. I understand it's like a giant ball with bamboo legs. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing design, Marco. So you have to imagine a, an iron ball, and then there are bamboo posts that radiate out from it. Now, inside the bamboo ball is, is actually put a GPS device. And then at the end of the bamboo poles are little plastic feet. So the idea is, is that this device would be light enough to blow in the wind, but heavy enough to detonate the mines. And at the same time with the GPS, you'd be able to track where it is going. So tell us more about the, the creator of this device and uh, what was the toy that inspired him? So the name of the guy who invented it is, his name is Masoud Hassani. And until he was a teenager, he lived in the northern part of Kabul in Afghanistan. And he lived right on the edge of a, an area of desert that was filled with landmines and, and all sorts of other ordnance that would go off. And, and he jokes and says, you know, this was our playground. We used to play around this, and, and we had a sense of how dangerous it was. But at the same time, they were also playing with small wind-powered toys that they would build out of things that they found on the ground. Mm. And so when his family eventually left Afghanistan, they ended up in Holland. He ended up going to design school. And when it came to do his, his last project for school, his teachers urged him to think back to his culture and come up with a design for something that he thought you know, could help out. And he immediately thought of these wind-powered toys and you know, could a larger-scale version of this be used to clear a minefield? Well, it sounds ingenious, but uh, does it work? Have they tested it? Well, they have tested it, and he tested it in conjunction with the, the Dutch Ordnance Disposal Unit. And, and I talked to the guy who runs that, and he was, he was quite clear and quite frank that this device, as it stands, is not good for mine clearance. In other words, the idea originally was is that it would be you know, strong enough to withstand a number of explosions and, and could sort of detonate an entire minefield. Well, as it stands now, the device kind of blows up and is unusable after, after it hits a couple of mines. Having said that, you know, it sounds like, well, then it's not going to be very useful because for the United Nations standards, you have to clear a minefield to 98% for it to be cleared, uh, which is why the, the guy at the Dutch Ordnance Disposal Unit said, look, this is, just isn't going to work the way it's built right now. But he said, there's no reason that maybe humanitarian organizations who are working in a dangerous area and who are worried that there may be mines in the area couldn't deploy one or two of these, uh, at least to set the perimeters of where the minefield would be and then you know, the human teams could come in and do the actual demining. But as you write, Clark, in your future column, the inventor Hassani uh, is excited by the prospect of tweaking this device and making it work. Oh, absolutely. He's completely committed to it. Uh, he wants to try to find ways to make the bamboo stronger so that it will withstand more explosions. Uh, he wants to find ways to better integrate the GPS and use the GPS uh, function of it. And he's even working on another kind of device that would be more of a, a kind of a roller device that would potentially uh, disable more mines at a time. Well, we'll see how this little idea evolves. The world's Clark Boyd, who writes about Masood Hassani's Mine Kafan in his latest column for the BBC Future website. You can read more about it and see a slideshow at our website, theworld.org. Clark, thank you. You're welcome, Marco. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The World Race Walking Cup is happening this weekend in the Russian region of Mordovia. 
I've never heard of the place, but Dave McGovern is there already. He's the head coach of the U.S. team. Dave, I bet there are a few people here in the U.S. who don't even know uh, we have a race walking team and that it's now competing in Russia against the world's best race walkers. Where are you exactly? I am in uh, a town of about 300,000 called Saransk. And it, as you said, it's in Mordovia, southwest of Moscow, about 350 miles. Right. So the answer to our geoquiz today is the city of Saransk. Race walking, it's a serious Olympic sport. But for the uninitiated, give us a, a really brief description of how it works. A lot of people don't realize it actually has been an Olympic event on its own since 1908, and it was actually part of the decathlon in 1904. So it has a, a very long history. And if you think of swimming, nobody thinks it's weird for Michael Phelps to do the backstroke and the, the crawl and the butterfly. It's a different way of getting around a track or, or on a road course, as we have here, a two-kilometer road course. Mm. And so how hard is it to get your speed up when you're walking heel-to-toe, heel-to-toe? Well, uh, it's it's surprisingly fast. The you know the elite men are going to be about six fifteen per mile, and you know if you can imagine running times, that's pretty quick. And the fifty k men will be under under three hours at the marathon, but they're doing five miles more than that in the fifty k walk. So, uh, so under seven minutes per mile. Who shows up for this kind of event? You know, the best of the best. And we are actually in the hotbed of race walking worldwide. Saransk has uh, many of the most recent world champions and, and Olympic champions. But other nations that do quite well are China, Australia, Spain. The reigning world champion and Olympic champion is a guy named Valery Borchin. He's actually from Saransk. Have you uh, spotted him yet? And so is uh, Olga Kaniskina. Actually, I, I, I Is she the women's world champion? World champion and uh, Olympic champion. I mean, she's really the – Borshin only has one you know, big medal to his name. Oh, uh, it's nothing. And kind of skin on the women's side has, has everything in the past uh, four or five years she's won. So I've seen them both on posters all over town. They've got – every tall building has a giant beyond, well beyond life-size poster of each of them. So it, it, it's quite a town. Their, their coach, uh, Victor Chagan, has an entire training center that's bigger than our Olympic training center in, say, in Colorado Springs or Chula Vista. And it's entirely dedicated to race walking. And what about just, you know, pedestrians in Saransk? Do they tend to walk quickly? I mean, where does that tradition come from? The, the second we got off the train, some of the uh, the workers at the on the train platform were walking faster than I've ever seen anybody walk. <laughs> really? It, it just has become their, uh, you know, the, the, the republic. I don't want to say the national pastime, but certainly the republic pastime. Mordovia is just known worldwide for the race walkers. Well, tomorrow the competition begins. Uh, what's to do in Saransk on a Friday night? Have you figured that one out yet, Dave? Get dinner is next. We we actually had the opening ceremonies. Uh, we just got back, and it was ballet and athleticism and fireworks and like a Super Bowl half show, halftime mm. show. All in the name of race walking. All in the name, believe it or not, all in the name of race walking. There's quite a tradition here. Wow, very cool. Dave McGovern coaches the U.S. race walking team. He's in Saransk, Russia. The answer to the quiz today. Dave, very good to speak with you. Thanks. Good. Great speaking with you. Finally today, 50 years after Beatlemania hit North America, it struck again this week in Mexico City. Hundreds of thousands of fans turned out last night for Paul McCartney's free outdoor concert in the Mexican capital. Organizers also set up giant TV screens for those who couldn't squeeze into the city's central plaza, the Zocalo. Mexico has a running love affair with Sir Paul and the Beatles. The country holds the current world record for radio airplay for Beatles music, 12 hours weekly. The love affair began, perhaps, with this song. That, of course, is the Beatles uh, covering the tune Besame Mucho in the early 60s. 
Paul McCartney did not play that last night, uh, but the BBC's Will Grant was at the concert and heard everything else he played. Uh, Will, this was a free show. Set the scene for us. How many people showed up? It was an extraordinary scene. There were people trying to get in right until the final encore. The queues stretched back into every single street leading into the Sokolo. I would say inside the square itself, it must have been uh, well plus the uh, expected 80,000. I think it was probably closer to 100 or 120,000 mm. people. Uh, and the mayor of Mexico City himself said it was more around 200,000. Uh, who knows if that's actually right, but certainly it was one of the most amazing spectacles I think that the Sokolo has uh, ever seen in terms of a, a musical experience and, and, and having a Beatle play live for free to an audience of adoring fans. Yeah, that's pretty extraordinary. I mean, numbers aside, had you ever seen anything like that in the Sokolo before? I hadn't, no, not at all. Um, in many ways, really, I think Mexico has been waiting for Paul McCartney and for a Beatle to, to come and play uh, in a mass way like this. Right. Well, that's not hyperbole because the Beatles were supposed to perform in Mexico City back in 1965, but never did. I- explain that. Well, the, the government of the day was a very authoritarian regime, and I think they were frightened at the idea that a group of uh, sort of mop-topped young men from Liverpool singing about revolution, what that might mean for the young people of Mexico, and, and basically cancelled on them, wouldn't let them come. It was due to be part of a tour in 1965, but it never took place. So, Beatlemania of a sort. Uh, imagine that, in 2012, uh, Alive and Well in Mexico. Uh, how huge are the Beatles in Mexico? Mexico right now. They're massive still, and, and that's what really struck me. I looked over at one point, uh, and one of the security guards, who must have been in his late 50s, early 60s, was singing the words, uh, all of course in English, absolutely word perfect. Wow. And I was just struck how, you know, how vibrant this experience was. And clutching in my hand, I've actually got the official playlist passed to me by Sir Paul's publicist, uh, which is a lovely memento for, for me. Bet, um, yeah. and, and just looking down, you know, um, the there's Paperback Writer, Long and Winding Road, Blackbird, and I Love Her. Just so many songs that really filled people with, you know, with, with the experience that they wanted. You know, Mexico is a country racked by violence just yesterday near the city of Guadalajara. 18 dismembered and beheaded bodies found. The Beatles, of course, were all about love, as in All You Need Is. Do you think the violence was on people's minds at this concert in Mexico City? And did the show provide a respite from it? There were two moments where I thought it was particularly poignant. First, when he was talking to people and and, and engaging with people in Spanish and and having this sort of open air experience and bringing people into this space for free, uh, that was a a very sort of shared moment and and put sort of conflicts into perspective. But then he also played uh, Give Peace a Chance, uh, obviously something very closely associated with John Lennon. Mm. Um, and, and as the crowd sang that, um, and he dropped out at one point and just let the crowd sing it, that was extremely poignant. And I think the violence, while people wasn't at the forefront of people's minds, um, I think it, it, in that kind of a moment, uh, it, it was very clear that this was a country that's going through very, very difficult moments in terms of the drug-related violence, 50,000 people killed in the last six years. Uh, And this message of of harmony and this message of bringing people together and give peace a chance uh, was particularly poignant against that backdrop. Now, 
was the BBC's Will Grant in Mexico City. Eric Goldberg composed the world's theme music. Join me on Twitter at Marco Werman. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I wish you a great weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. And by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.